And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahan Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughter, daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to to take a wife from the un, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the clerk of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you to the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to him, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up to the rock. When he came to the Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that, ha that had caught fire, and his bounds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it he struck a thousand men, and Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And the, that place was called Rameth Lahi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that that is at Lahi, and water came out from it. And he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called in Hakor. It is at Lahi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is the word of the Lord.
Let's open with another word of prayer. Father, we are your children, and we've come because more than anything else, we want to hear you speak to us. You tell us what is true to, to work in our hearts and bring resurrection and holiness and righteousness. Pray that we receive what it is you have to speak to us. Conform us to the image of our, of our wonderful Savior, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Samson is, is probably one of the most complex figures in the Bible, and his story is, is one of those stories that sticks with you. Once you've heard it, you can't really unhear it. And in fact, one of my earliest human memories as a human being is uh, my dad went to seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary in the early 90s, me sitting in the Dallas Theological, Library, Dallas Theological Seminary Library while my dad studied as a good seminarian, watching a cartoon rendition of Samson. Uh, this is like 1990, so I, I have no idea what the technology would have looked like at that time. I, I, again, you know, three-year-old memories. I remember these huge headphones, and then I remember Samson was incredibly strong in the cartoon, which is funny because he, well, anyways, but, and then I remember him putting his hands on the pillars and like bringing down the Temple of Dagon. He's a three-year-old, just seared in my mind. And it's not just like Christians that this story sticks with. It's interesting. You see references to Samson, the story of Samson, in all kinds of pop culture areas. There's, you know, the story is referenced in songs by Bob Dylan, Queen, The Grateful Dead, Maybe most familiar to my generation, millennials, is uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, immortalized in the cult classic Shrek. And then not just lowbrow areas of culture, but in highbrow areas, you have great paintings like Peter, Paul, Rubens, Samson, and Delilah. Uh, you have John, uh, yeah, John Milton writing an epic poem, uh, Samson Agonistes. It's just something that resonates in hearts and minds. There's something about this story that just appeals to us. And certainly part of the reason is that Samson is fundamentally different than the previous judges. In previous judges, they were leaders who would lead Israel to battle and provide direction for the country. Samson is more like Hulk in the early Marvel movies before he learns how to control himself, where it's just, you know, he's going to smash things, and, and you kind of push him in the right direction, and you hope he smashes the right things, and there's no guarantee, though, what's going to happen. And further, he was also, of all the judges, born with the greatest expectations. God spoke to his mother beforehand and announced his birth, saying, you're going to give birth to a son who will begin to deliver Israel from his enemies. Huge expectations. And then he's arguably the worst of all the judges. He's arrogant, he's impulsive, he's narcissistic, and yet he is God's instrument. It's strange, it's troubling at places. Superficially, what stands out to us most from the story of Samson are, are all his heroic exploits. You know, he, he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. How do you do that? I don't know. But more profoundly and more theologically, what God is trying to communicate to us is that here is Samson, and he is, he is pursuing his own, his own way in life. He is pursuing his own ends and his own means, but yet he is exactly the man God needs to bring to an end a sinister peace that Israel is falling into that is leading them away from Yahweh and his purposes. Samson was the means of ending that peace. He was William Wallace, 
again in the movie Braveheart, going into that group where the nobles of Scotland are trying to sue for peace with England, and he's like, I'm going to pick a fight. That's Samson. That's the role that God has for him. And further, perhaps more than any other story in Judges, we see the God of all grace that does not deal with us according to our sins deserve. Because Samson is, is a judge, but as we'll see, he's also representative. He, he reflects the nation of Israel. His weaknesses are Israel's weakness. His failings are Israel's failings. And yet, God does not abandon Israel. Nor does he abandon Samson, even at the very end. And there's evidence, again, that we'll see when we look at the last chapter, that even Samson, there's evidence that God's grace on him was not without effect. So our outline is, first point, peace with the world. Second point, Samson, the instigator. Third point, God of all grace. So peace with the world. A brief note, we're covering two chapters. So I'm, I'm not going to be able to read everything. I'm not going to be able to go in kind of verse by verse as we normally do. There's going to be a lot of summarizing. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of themes I'm not going to be able to touch on. Again, my goal is to touch on what's primary. That's what expositional preaching is. We look at what is the main point, and that's what we make our main point. So just, that's just kind of a, a, a brief note. But a recap, last week we looked at the announcement of Samson. Uh, God appears to his mother and his father and tell him, you're going to give birth to this boy. And, and he's going to save, he's going to begin to save Israel from their sin, uh, sorry, from their enemies. And the reason why that's important is right before this announcement, in chapter 13, 1, we're told that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And so they are being ruled over by the Philistines. And that's the context into which God gives us good news. That there's going to be a, a birth of a son who will deliver Israel. Now, I've mentioned before that as you read through the book of Judges, there's a cycle we begin to see. Uh, and it begins with Israel does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's kind of code for they are worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. Uh, and so God sells them into a foreign nation. Israel suffers under the foreign nation. They cry out to Yahweh. Yahweh raises up a judge. The judge delivers them. That's the cycle. But what's really interesting in Samson is that we're missing a really critical part of that cycle. We have... Israel turning away from Yahweh. We have Yahweh selling them into the Philistines. What we're missing is Israel groaning under their oppression. And we're missing Israel crying out to Yahweh for deliverance. As we read this story more closely, what seems to be the case is that Israel has grown very comfortable. They've made peace with the Philistines as their overlords. They've made peace with the ways of the Philistines. And this we see in all kinds of ways in, in our text. Again, the, the, the uh, part that, that Liberty read at the end of chapter 15 when, when the um, Philistines make a raid on Israel and, in the pa and, and, uh, and then the Israelites go to Samson and rather than like with the previous judges joining and following Samson to, to drive out the Philistines, they get angry at the judge and they say, what are you doing? And they deliver the judge over to the Philistines. They're like, no, Samson, don't, don't rock the boat. We have peace now. Uh, we see it in other ways, Timnah, the town where this all kinds of starts, uh, which is a Philistine town. It's in the heart of Israel. In the heart of Israel, there is now a village that is Philistine. Again, so much for driving out the peoples and making this a place devoted to Yahweh. Further, Samson's free to move about the country. I mean, like, he's like going into Philistine villages without, you know, danger to his life. He's walking about the countryside. I've never been in a war zone. Some of you have in this building. When you're in a war zone, you just don't go waltzing about into enemy-occupied territory. That looks like peacetime. Israel is being ruled by a foreign nation, but they're at 
peace. And then fourth, Samson's kind of casual requesting to marry this Philistine woman suggests that intermarriage is becoming more and more common. And again, the problem here wasn't the ethnicity. The problem was it was a religious purpose. Israel was not to marry into foreign religions. They were to be set apart for Yahweh alone. Now compare all this to the previous judge cycles, okay? Othniel and Ehud, the first two judges, the people cry out. Like, they're not happy being oppressed by foreign nations. They cry out to God. Uh, with Gideon and Deborah, like, things are so bad in Israel that they're abandoning the villages and only living in walled cities, and they're fleeing to the, to the hills. But here we get to Samson, and Israel's just accepted it, and they've grown comfortable. They've so acclimated themselves being ruled by the Philistines that the country has all the characteristics of peacetime. And Tim Keller writes, we can't exaggerate the danger to Israel. The Israelites were on the brink of extinction. Within a couple of generations, they could have been completely assimilated into the Philistine nation. Now again, this is kind of the overarching problem of, of, of judges. Israel is supposed to have um, driven out the Canaanites to create a nation of people who are set apart for God, and they fail to drive out all the Canaanite nations, and then they begin to look like the very nations that they were supposed to have driven out. They become more and more Canaanized, and this helps us understand the ministry of Samson because he's so different. He's just this maverick guy running around beating up people, and he's not like, like no one follows him, right? The definition of a leader is like, look behind you, and if there's no one there, you're not leading anyone. What is he doing? Well, he's God's instrument to bring an end to this peace that Israel is forming with the cultures around them because it's assimilating Israel into, these, into the Philistine nation. And so Samson's chosen to pick a fight, and that's exactly what he does. But before we get to that, which is our second point, let's consider the warning that we see from the Israelites. Again, Israel's making peace with the world. That's the first point, peace with the world. And as Christians, we are always facing the danger and the possibility of assimilating into this world. It's a danger that we face of losing, you know, communities of faith over time, losing what makes us distinctive. Jesus puts it this way, losing our saltiness. Now, there's various ways this can happen. One of the obvious ways in our culture today is with human sexuality. Uh, You know, we as a church, we hold to the historic Christian understanding of sexual ethics. And there are are, are neighbors in in this neighborhood who will hate us for that. Never having met us, no interest in knowing you or talking to you or understanding your perspective, they'll hate you for that. And that's hard. If you've experienced it, I've experienced it, and it's hard for people to hate you and say you're a bigot and a terrible person, and they don't even know you. And there's pressure. And part of the danger there is just like when you're standing in a stream and there's pressure against you, you naturally lean against it. And not only are we trying to stand upright, but we're trying to also avoid overreacting. It's just tough. But I think another way that we can assimilate in ways that we are assimilating that is far more subtle and in that way maybe even more dangerous is this. It's when our churches begin to mirror the same division and polarization and infighting that we see in our culture. You know, right? So our culture is fighting over elections and lo and behold, our churches are fighting over elections. Uh, our country's tearing itself apart over COVID and, and restrictions and all this stuff and lo and behold, 
Our churches are tearing each other apart over COVID restrictions and regulations. And our churches are killing themselves to buy Taylor Swift tickets. And lo and behold, churches are, I'm just kidding, Taylor Swift's dope. She's good. But we're seeing exactly the same anger and divisiveness and polarization and separation in our churches as we see in the wider world. And beloved, this is not ought to be so. We know what Jesus wants for us. He told us in John 17, his prayer, his, if you want to know what Jesus prays for you, for me, for every church, it's that we would be one. That's his heart. But we're fraying every which way. And my question is, why are we doing this? And that's a complex question, and I don't have, there aren't easy answers to that. There's probably a lot of answers. But I do think that one significant reason is that we've just frankly forgotten what we're supposed to be about. Jesus gave us really clear marching orders. Before he ascended into heaven, his last instructions were go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's what we're here to do. And here's, a, here's the thing, though. Is when, when you look at the baptism numbers of the Southern Baptist Convention, it tells a very different story. In 1980, and you can find all these numbers online, it's very interesting. In 1980, uh, Southern Baptist Convention baptized about one new Christian for every 32 members. That means in a church of 60, you'd have two baptisms per year on average. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I mean, it sounds pretty good. If those are, you know, adult converts. Uh, and that number stayed the same in the 80s and the 90s. It was trending up a little bit, but stayed pretty steady until early 2000s. And right around 2010, that number started going way, way up. And as of 2022, which is the last year that we have data for, we baptized one new believer for every 73 members less than half of what we were baptizing in 1980. And here's the sad thing is that's a massive improvement from 2021. We're not seeing people come to Christ. Why? Well, again, that's also complicated, but I think one reason is we're honest with ourselves. It's just not the most important thing anymore. The human heart only has room for so many passions. Like, I feel like in in Harry Potter when Hermione talks to Ron, she's like, you have the emotional ability of a teaspoon. Or maybe that's the case. I'll speak for me personally. I, I can only be passionate about so many things. And so I'm either going to be passionate about the kingdom of God and what he's called us to do in advancing that kingdom, or I'm going to be passionate about whatever crisis is roiling the internet. I don't think, though, that we as Christians can do both very well. And I think that's what we're seeing. Why am I at Vine Street? It's because I think this church has a role to play in Jesus' great commission. It's because I think Germantown needs a gospel witness. You know, like, why didn't Mark and I relocate back to Texas? May it be forever blessed. It's because I want to play my small part in being a gospel witness in the city of Louisville. It's because I really do think that there are neighbors outside these doors in this neighborhood who are going to go to hell. And yet God is calling some of them, and he wants to use us. And if we're not here, there ain't nobody else in Germantown, y'all. And I think this has to be the heartbeat of our church. And the reason I think, though, is not because I have this fantastic vision, but because Jesus has spoken it so clearly, and he didn't stutter. Go and make disciples. That's what you're here to do. Everything else is negotiable. So we have to choose as a church, what are we here for? What are we going to give ourselves to? And if you're a member of this church, why are you a member? 
What's, you know, why are you part of this fellowship? If we're genuine Christians, if we're regenerate, born-again Christians, and we keep our eyes on the mission, we can work through all kinds of things. I really believe that. It will not be easy. It will not be easy, but it is possible if we keep our eyes on the mission. And here's the thing, if we take our eyes off the mission, well, then we get what we've had for the last eight years in the American church. It won't be easy, but it's worth it because the mission is worth it. So, and when we, and when we do take our eyes off the mission, guys, we end up looking like the ugliest parts of our culture. We assimilate. Just like Israel is in danger of assimilating here. So that's our first point, peace with the world. As Samson comes on the stage, things are peaceful in Israel, but it is the wrong kind of peace. It is the peace of assimilating into what God opposes. And so God raises up Samson to cause some trouble. And this brings us to our second point, which is Samson the instigator. And here we're finally going to actually read some verses together. So let's look at verses 1 to 4. Let me read this for us. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. In verse 4, and this is probably the key verse to understanding Samson's ministry. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. There are two things happening in the story of Samson. One is Samson, and uh, he is supposed to be a Nazarite devoted to the Lord, and he just isn't. And he pursues his own passions, his own agenda. He has his own thing he's doing. So oftentimes a lot of personal vengeance. And yet at the same time, he is exactly doing what God wants him to do to bring an end to this peace between Israel. At the end of the day, this is from the Lord, for God is seeking an opportunity to break up this little cozy friendship that has developed. So those both are happening at the same time. And it all begins with this situation of Samson wanting to marry a Philistine woman from the town of Timnah. And to give you an idea what the, how the story works, it's like this is like the pebble at the top of a mountain and it gets rolling down. And as it's rolling down, it's going faster and faster, and it's picking up speed, and it's bringing debris with it, and by the time it gets to the bottom mountain, it's just, it's just an avalanche. That's how the story works, and it all begins with this request to marry this woman at Timnah. So let's get to the story of how this goes down. Let me read verses 5 to 9 for us as well. So Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, the young lion came toward him, roaring, and then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. As you're reading through the story of Samson, the story of the lion is just, it just seems to come out of nowhere. It's like, what's the point of this? And then 
it doesn't make any sense, but it's such a crucial ingredient for what all that goes on and how this little pebble turns into an avalanche that permanently and irreparably alienates Israel and Philistia from each other. And, 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 and so you just, it's, it's an important detail to know. So I'm just going to summarize the rest of the story again for time's sake. But Samson goes down to marry uh, this Philistine woman in Timnah, and, and as they do in, in Philistia, they have a seven-day raucous drinking fest. That's the only, that's, that's the best way to, to look at it. It's the ancient Near East, just debauched bachelor party. And in the middle of this, uh, and, and, and the Philistines give Samson 30 groomsmen to party with him. And it's not clear whether this is hospitality or intimidation. Like, Samson doesn't have any friends. And so they're like, hey, here's some friends. But 30 is a lot. I've seen some big wedding parties. I've never seen 30 groomsmen. And so when you show up and there's like, here's 30 Philistines, it's like, okay, what are you, this intimidate, it's not, it's not clear. But they're partying in the middle of this party, Samson challenges the Philistines with this riddle. Now you gotta remember, okay, if, you know, there's peace, Israel's at peace, but Philistines still the overlords. And so you scratch beneath the surface and things can get tense. And so as soon as, as, soon as Samson challenges them to this riddle, you gotta, you gotta picture like the tension in the room. And he gives them really good odds. He says, look, I'm gonna give you a riddle and you're gonna have the rest of the three days to, to figure this out. You can all work together. Pretty good odds. But if you can't figure it out, you gotta give me 30 sets of clothes. If, if, uh, if you do figure it out, I'll give you 30 sets of clothes. And he tells them the riddle in verse 14. Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. It's a very clever riddle. And of course, because of this random story, we know what he's talking about. Out of the eater, the, the lion, one who eats, comes something to eat. That's honey. Out of the strong, again, a lion is the strongest predator in that area. Something sweet, honey. Very clever. Also impossible to figure out if you have not seen that, okay? Uh, <laughs> honey, uh, bee nests do not grow in carcasses. Maggots and putrefaction grows in carcasses. That in itself was a miracle that that happened, which is an interesting side point. No way are the Philistines going to figure this out. It's not a fair riddle, but again, Samson's not really all that interested in fairness. And so they can't figure it out. The Philistines realize that they're going to have to give 30 sets of clothing, which at the time would have been a significant wager, to this Hebrew man who they despise. And so they tell his future wife, hey, you either figure out what this riddle means or we're going to kill you. We're going to waste you and your family. And so we get verse uh, 17, and, and, and Samson's future wife, she wept before him seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And if you're familiar with the story of Samson, you see echoes of what will happen with Samson and Delilah, who also presses Samson until he caves. But the Philistines, they solve Samson's riddle. He knows what they did. And so in rage, he does not give his own clothes. He goes to Ashkelon, murders 30 Philistines, brings their clothes and gives that to the Philistines and then goes off in a huff. And that's how chapter 14 ends. Chapter 15 begins and Samson's been gone for an undisclosed amount of time, weeks, months, it doesn't tell us. And, you know, Samson's a womanizer, but for all his womanizing, he does not seem to understand women. He seems to have broken off his wedding, left for a month, two, three months, and then comes back and thinks he can pick right back up. And he has a goat to show his apology. And again, I'm not a woman, but I can suspect that may not, may not be quite that simple. And so he gets back and actually finds out that his future father-in-law had given his future wife to another man. Well, Samson really gets angry now, and so what he does is he goes out and he catches 300 foxes or jackals, 
ties them together by their tails and pairs of two, lights their tails on fire, and sends them out into the grain fields. And they burn all of the Philistines' grain. Now keep in mind that grain was the staple of the Philistine economy, and he decimates the Philistine economy. That's not exactly an eye for an eye, okay? (laughs) Again, but this is Samson. He's the instigator. He's going to take it the next level. That's who he is. That's the, that's the instrument that God is using at this time. And so when all the, the grain fields are, are decimated, the Philistines realize what happened, and perhaps because they thought it'd be easier to take it out on Philistine's former future wife and father-in-law rather than try to take it out on Samson, they go to his former future father-in-law and, and burn him and his, his daughter and family. And it's this tragic mini-episode that again just shows us this is what the Philistines were like. This is the culture that Israel is assimilating into. Well, when Samson finds out that they killed his former future father-in-law and former future wife, then he really goes ballistic, and it says in verse 8 that he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. And that phrase, hip and thigh, is just a Hebrew saying, and the NIV probably translates it pretty well when it says that he attacked them viciously, and he slaughtered many of them. And Samson, in kind of his naivete, thinks that he can just do this and call it quits. In fact, in verse 7, he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to have my revenge, and after that, I will quit. But when you kick a hornet's nest, the hornets are going to swarm. And so the Philistines send a raiding party into Judah as retaliation. This is what Liberty read this morning. And, uh, and of course, the Israelites, rather than banding with Samson, they side with the Philistines. They deliver Samson to the Philistines. When Samson is approaching them, the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson. He picks up a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he kills a thousand Philistines. And that's how the chapter ends. Again, this little rock at the top of the mountain, this desiring to marry this woman from Timnah, and his parents are like, Samson, why would you do this? And it was wrong. Absolutely, Samson is acting in his own volition. And yet this is the means God is going to use to bring an earthquake to this peace that had been developing between Israel and between Philistia. So it makes this story so brilliant. Again, on the superficial level, we're taken up with the heroics of Samson. He's, you know, killing a thousand men with a jawbone. I don't even know how you do that. But on a far more profound level is that God is, is using Samson, even in his sin, to accomplish exactly what he wanted to accomplish. God will do what he must to wake up his people and put an end to their peace and comfort. And he will use whomever he wills to do so. And brothers and sisters, one truth that we learn from Samson and Judges is that God's greatest desire for us is not necessarily our happiness and our comfort, but it's holiness. It's to be set apart for him. When the Philistines raid Israel and the Israelites are coming to Samson, like you, you feel for the Israelites. Right? They're like, Samson, don't, what are you doing? We finally have peace. Our children can play in the streets without being worried about them being slaughtered by raiders. We can like harvest our crops without worry about people pillaging. What are you doing? Why are you wrecking the peace? But this peace, if it was allowed to continue, would have destroyed the people of God. So God sends a loose cannon into their midst to blow things apart, because God's greatest desire for Israel was not their happiness and their comfort, it was that they would be a people set apart for himself. 
And maybe this explains some of, of, of what we've seen in American churches, the conflict and the mess. Maybe there were areas where we were acclimating, assimilating, taking non-Christian values and baptizing them in our hearts and minds as if they're Christian. And so God sent social and spiritual avalanches to wake us up. I don't know. I mean, God knows his mind. I don't. But I do know that God desires our holiness more than we do. And we can praise him for that. And so he'll do what he must. He'll ruin our peaceful lives if it means saving us from spiritual extinction. So again, to recap, peace with the world. Israel's problem was that they had made peace with the nations and they were about to assimilate. And so we get to our second point, Samson the instigator. He is God's instrument to pick a fight. But our comfort in all this craziness that we're reading and our comfort in the crazy lives that we live is that we see that God is always and still a God of all grace. And this is our third and final point, a God of all grace. I've mentioned it doesn't take long for us to see that Samson is a, a far cry from the man that we want him to be. And we see it probably most clearly in how he treats his Nazarite vows. If you remember, he was a Nazarite from birth to tomb. And a Nazarite had three vows they took. Uh, they weren't supposed to touch dead bodies, they weren't supposed to drink alcohol, and they weren't supposed to cut their hair. And Samson breaks all three of them. So first, and if you remember, when he comes across a lion and kills him, that's fine, but then when he comes back, he finds a lion carcass, and there's a bee's nest in it, and he scrapes up the honey. He's touching a dead body just because he wants to taste something sweet. He's breaking his vow. And then later, when he picks up the, 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 the jawbone of the donkey, it's very clear in the text, it's a fresh jawbone. Again, he's touching a dead body. He also drinks alcohol. This one's not as explicit, but it's still pretty clear. Again, this word in, in, in 14 verse 10, when he talks about this feast that Samson prepared as the young men used to do, guys, it's a drinking party. It's the same word used for other parties in the Old Testament where people are all getting hammered. And so Samson is drinking with these Philistines, breaking his second Nazarite vow. And then the third and final vow that he hasn't broken till the end of his life, cutting his hair. What's really peculiar about the story of Samson and Delilah is she's like bothering him, like, how, what's the secret of your strength? And so he's like, okay, well, you bind me with these ropes, I'll be as weak as any man. So she binds him with ropes. And then of course he breaks the ropes and it's like, ha ha, gotcha. He's like, wait, if you like braid my hair in a certain way, and so she, bra- she, do- she does it, right? And then finally he tells her, if you cut my hair, he knows that she's going to cut his hair. He's not stupid. Samson doesn't want to be a Nazarite by the end of his life. That's the, that's the only way to make sense of that story. And so he's not technically the one who cuts his hair, but he might as well have been the one. Samson was supposed to be this Nazarite from birth, one set apart, dedicated to Yahweh, and yet he breaks every Nazarite vow he takes maybe one of the worst Nazarites in the history of Nazarites. And here's w- what our text is getting at. Again, Samson is not just an alone man, but he's a reflection of Israel. Israel also had broken all of their vows that they made to Yahweh. When God had led them into the promised land, he had made vows to them and they'd made vows to him. That's what a covenant is. It's an agreement with vows built into it. And when Moses is standing with the people before they're entering the promised land, he made, them, he made vows before them. So in Deuteronomy 30, he charges Israel. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply 
and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. And again, Israel, just like Samson, who broke all his Nazarite vows, Israel breaks all of these charges. They don't love the Lord their God with all their heart. They split their affections with many other beings, many other deities. And in fact, they get to the point where they hardly love God at all. They don't keep all of God's commandments and statutes and ordinances. They, in other words, they don't walk in his ways. And this becomes really clear in the last couple chapters in Judges as we see the darkness that comes from that. They didn't guard their hearts against idolatry, but they ended up running after all the gods that they were supposed to break down and destroy. And so here's a question. Why isn't God through with Israel? What was the promise? If you follow me, I'll bless you beyond your wildest dreams, and if you don't, you'll be cursed. And again and again and again, like Israel's not keeping up on their side, yet again and again, God raises up these judges. Why is he not through with them? Why is he still pursuing this people? And the answer is because God is always faithful to his promises, even when we are not. Again, Tim Keller writes, God remains unconditionally committed to his covenant promises. He has promised to love them and give them an inheritance and never break his commitment to doing so. And here he is. He is so faithful to his promises that he not only fulfills them in spite of their sin, but even through their sin. Long before Israel was a nation, God had promised things to Abraham that he would make a great people of him. And through those people, he would bless all the families of the, of the world. That promise came first, and God will be faithful to that promise regardless of what Israel does. And in fact, he'll be so faithful to that promise that one day he'll be willing to send his own son to come into the world that he created and die on a cross to bear the weight of our guilt and our shame. It doesn't matter that Israel rejects him then too. God is faithful, though we remain faithless. The fact that the judges cycle repeats, you know, it gets like repetitive after a while. You're like, oh my gosh, it's happening again. But let's not miss the fact that the fact that it does repeat. And once again, God is willing to raise up a judge. And once again, God is coming after his people. And once again, he's willing to use even one like Samson. It's because God is faithful to his promises, always. He never breaks them. He's true to his word. We're faithless. But God is faithful. He's a God of all grace. This is my hope for me personally. Uh, I know better than anyone how vain and self-deceived I can be, how prone my heart is to wandering, how weak my faith is. And I imagine you're similar. My hope is not in me, but it's in God who is true to his promises. Not because I'm faithful, but because he is. This is my hope for Vine Street and for every church that worships the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus knows his own. And he will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. He'll do his work through us, whether through our obedience or, as we see in Samson, through our very disobedience. He will accomplish his will. Praise his name. Let's pray.
God, we rejoice that you're a God who holds on to us and you never let go. And sometimes you're willing to ruin our lives and even bring pain and suffering. But you know what's best. We surrender ourselves to you. Keep us from making peace with what we should never make peace with. May we be a distinctive community that looks different because we know Jesus and you're present among us and you're transforming us. May that be an aroma that begins to make an impact here in Germantown and throughout this city and throughout this world. We trust you with the future of all things. We know so little. Our perspective is tiny, but you are the God who sees all, so we trust you. Help us to be faithful by your grace in the little place you've called us to, and that is enough for us. We praise you, Jesus. We worship you. Amen.